Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff, the podcast. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because you just moved your chair. Oh, that, yeah, that's hilarious. Um, well, we'll it's see a laugh if it's a minute. still on there. Here. The podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah. Which we obviously don't. I guess we don't. And we're back at Think Tank Coworking in Yarmouth. Yes, it's very nice. Hard by the beautiful Royal River in and not-so-beautiful Interstate 295. Yep. And we have some updates. Yes, we do. Do you want me to go first? Yes. Okay. My update is episode 29. Wow, that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was last summer. Because this is like, what, episode 44? I think so. Or 45. I might be 45. Yeah, I think you're right. Actually, well, that was 43. Well, we'll have to do something special on episode 50. Yeah. If we're still around. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, episode 29 was about Annie Dukin, the chemist that... Fake results. results. I couldn't think of the word. She she did a great job. Yeah. Well, yeah, she was a great, she was such a great speedy worker. Yeah. To make a long story short. Yeah, it's complicated. About 40,000 cases were overturned. In Massachusetts. In Massachusetts because of her shitty work and faking stuff. They did have overturned cases, but the people still had court fines and stuff. So I'm going to read the short article that was in the Boston Globe today about it. There's a class action. Class Action suit, and this is an article by Sean Musgrave. Dukin defendants want fees repaid. They do have a name called Dukin defendants, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which we did talk about. Yeah. In the latest development in the Annie Dukin scandal, plaintiffs filed a federal class action lawsuit Friday seeking the repayment of probation fees and other fines paid to the state in drug cases that were dismissed due to evidence tampering by the disgraced former state chemist. The Commonwealth took millions of dollars from the pockets of people who were wrongfully convicted, and it must now give them their money back, Daniel Marks, a lawyer representing the plaintiffs, said in a press release. Last year, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court vacated more than 21,000 cases involving so-called Dukin defendants. Mm -hmm. The suit contends that their due process rights were violated and they should be paid back the money they paid in the course of their arrest, incarcerations, and probations. Last week, the SJC, which is Supreme Judicial (laughs) (laughs) agreed to (laughs) hear a related case from a man who paid thousands of fees after pleading guilty to drug possession charges. Both cases rely on a U.S. Supreme Court ruling from last April, Nelson versus Colorado, which was published the same day thousands of Dukin-related convictions were vacated. In that case, the Supreme Court ordered the state of Colorado to refund fees to a woman who was convicted but later acquitted of felony charges. The existence of both these cases shows that Although convictions have now been overturned, the state hasn't done much of anything to actually right the wrongs that were imposed on Dukin defendants, said Matthew Siegel, legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. One of the plaintiffs, Stacy Foster of Hyde Park, pleaded guilty to drug distribution in 2005. He was sentenced to two years of probation, during which he paid a monthly supervision fee, according to the suit. Foster also had to pay to reinstate his driver's license. Police seized approximately $1,800 from another plaintiff, Jamie Kimball of Woburn, when she was arrested in 2010. According to the complaint, Kimball explained to the police that funds were from her legitimate employment and for her monthly rent. The court ordered Kimball to undergo drug testing and counseling at her own expense, the suit said. The third plaintiff, Jonathan Riley, pleaded guilty in 2008 to drug possession with intent to distribute. 
He was sentenced to two years of probation. The suit named as defendants Governor Charlie Baker, Attorney General Maura Healy, and other state officials, as well as several district attorneys. So that will be interesting to see. They do deserve some kind of reparation. Right, and if people are wondering why some people pleaded guilty, the police presented them with this. I mean, there was one guy, it was a cashew. And police presented them with, these were found to be drugs. And you know how people are. They're like, well, if it was found to be drugs, I guess I must have had drugs. And people are pressured into, you know, they don't want to go through a long trial and spend all the money and they can't afford afford a lawyer. So even if they're not guilty, they realize now they have an uphill battle because there are tests showing, yes, you had drugs, even though they yeah. know they didn't, so they plead guilty. And you never know. I mean, if, if somebody, if I got stopped for something and a cop's like, I found, like, marijuana leaves ground up or something on this rug of your car, I'd be like, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I would. I don't smoke, but who right. knows? Who maybe knows how they got, got my car, right. I don't know. But in any case, so I have an update, too. And my update is episode 42, The Gardner Museum Heist. Robert Gentile, who's now, I think, 82, a mobster, a reputed mobster, who the FBI thinks was involved in the Gardner Museum Heist of 1990, was found guilty in April 2017 of gun charges. And you'll read in stories that they were unrelated, but basically... The FBI has been kind of hounding him for years in a lot of ways to get him to say what he knows about the Gardner heist. But he was convicted in April of 2017, but he wasn't sentenced, and he was just found competent. He had said he didn't remember pleading guilty and other issues, so they finally have deemed him competent, and so he can proceed to sentencing. I think he'll get three to six years, and he's not well, and he's 82, so he'll we'll probably never know what he knows. Die. Maybe he'll he'll say what he knows before he dies. Maybe he will. Maybe, maybe he'll, he'll leave won't. a letter. But yeah. who knows if it's true or not? I know. Who knows if he even knows anything? I know. And you have to listen to episode 42 to determine for yourself. Well, now there's a new podcast about it. We don't have to really publicize other people's us. podcasts. I know we talked about that last time. Oh, yeah. how everyone copies us. But yeah, you know. and that there's a podcast about. Oh, our, we did. Yeah, Sorry. We did. So to rub it in. Yeah. Speaking of which, I think there are several podcasts about the one I'm going to do. Well, mine's the best. Yeah, but why don't you? You know, we don't care. We're not trying to. It's necessarily, not a competition. And we're we are what we are. We're not investigating crimes. We're not no. doing anything. We do some research. We try to tell you a good story. We try to make sure we're accurate. We try to tell you stuff you may not already know. And we try to have fun while we're doing it. And that's yeah, what we do that here. That is what we do. And if you want, like, investigative journalism or other shit or don't want to hear an <laughs> interstate in the background, <laughs> go listen to somebody else's podcast. Anyways. Are you ready? Because I'm yes. looking forward to it. Yes, so today it's, I'm going too to... too bad, I was just going to say, too bad we couldn't have, like, the Boomtown Rats in the background. Like every other documentary I saw. It is fair use, I think, if you're... Is if it? You, I, I don't know. It's I only fair use. Another podcast was just talking. It's only fair use if you're reviewing the song. I think. Huh. I know that I had to. I used. What lyrics. about when we talked about when we talked about Alan? Jen- that was an accident. <laughs> don't sue us. That was an accident. <laughs> Way down the under. But my most recent mystery novel, No News Is Bad News. Oh yes. I used lyrics from the Talking Head song Life During Wartime. And I had to get licensing. I had to pay licensing for that. Mm. And I had to fill out this whole thing and estimate how many books I was going to sell. <laughs> and send them send them the pages from the manuscript showing where I used them. And then I actually had to send them two copies of the book. 
And it's funny because they send you this email. David Byrne thinks your book sounds so good, you know, and he's the lead singer for Talking Head, that he wants two copies. That's like bullshit. You want two copies so you can check and make sure that I didn't publish Well, maybe book. David Byrne does like it. If David Byrne was reading my fucking book, he'd like it so much he'd be talking about it, and then people would buy it. And I'd oh, sell is it? But in any case... First of all, when was the last time you heard David Byrne on... But anyway... That young hipster guy just ruined our podcast with this slamming door. Well, he probably doesn't like the sound of women's voices. He can yeah, go well, fuck himself. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, anyway. and why does every guy that age have to shave his fucking head? Why does every guy have to shave his fucking head? Because they're going bald, I think. I'd rather but, see you know, a guy I don't his care about the, ha- the hair so much as the long beards that they all have. Oh, been. I know. The Amish beard look? What is that? I or the ZZ know. Top all beard look? I don't want to. men have it. I know those thick, bushy beards. It was gross. I would not date a guy with a beard like that. I'm sure you've broken it- a lot of hearts right now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I have. But anyway, maybe we should get into your um Yes, story. I got my story today is about Brenda Ann Spencer. Mm. Who you may know as I don't like Monday's girl. Yeah. The I was gonna say the um why can't I think of words? The inspiration for the song by the, the Boomtown boom Rats. One thing that annoys me is everything I've read keeps referring them as a punk band, which they are they not. They were not punk. No. So anyway, but we're going to talk about the song later, yes. so we don't need to talk about it now. And if you haven't heard it, you can Google it. Brenda they I play that born. song all the time yeah, anyway. Do they? I don't know. I, I haven't listened to the radio I'm, since the 90s. Uh, I listened, well, see, I feel like I'm still in the 90s. I just listened to my... I listened to the oldies, the classic, classic rock. Classic rock. But anyway. Okay. The morning of January 29th, 1979 was eerie and odd, thought 10-year-old Crystal Hardy as she walked to school. She attended Grover Cleveland Elementary School in the San Carlos neighborhood of San Diego. It was a dreary day with frost on the grass. She went to the gate where Principal Rag would come and let them in to start the school day. It was about 8.20. Monica Selvik, Crystal's classmate, was walking to school alone. As she approached the school, she suddenly fell to the ground. She didn't understand why she had fallen at first. She later found out that she had been shot in the abdomen. When you get shot, sometimes the bullet is traveling so fast you don't immediately feel pain. Some people say it feels like a punch or something knocking them down. Crystal heard poppy noises and thought someone had firecrackers. She turned to see what was going on and was shot in the wrist. The bullet went through her wrist without hitting any bones or doing any permanent physical damage. Cam Miller, nine years old, was wearing a blue vest. He was shot through the chest as he walked up to school. A bullet entered through his back and exited out of his chest. He said that the scar in his chest is a daily reminder. He was later told Brenda picked blue to shoot at because it was her favorite color. Mm. Although I don't know if that's really true. That yeah, sounds like that. A, could be but one that's of those. what he believes. So yeah. it, he said that in an interview. Well, the way to find out would be were all the people shot wearing blue? No. Yeah. So we'll talk about that. Okay. Later. Teacher Daryl Barnes was in the principal's office with Burton Rag, the principal. They heard the popping sounds and looked out a window. They saw some kids drop to the ground or grab parts of their body and start crying. Others were just looking around confused. The two men realized something horrible was going on and ran outside to help. Three shots rang out and rags spun and fell to the ground, a red stain spreading across his chest. He was shot in the aorta. His death was almost immediate. 1979 was Gaetana Patton's first year as a teacher in San Diego. She heard popping noises outside and thought it was some kind of toy one of the kids had got for Christmas. Actually, it kind of was. I like the foreshadowing. She looked out the window just in time to see Principal Wag flailing and falling backwards. He had a large red splotch on his chest. 
The stool custodian, Michael Sucker, saw the principal get shot and ran out to try to help him. He brought a blanket with him. I think he was going to cover him with Aww. a blanket. And he got shot Aww. and died immediately on Aww. the scene. Daryl Barnes continued to help the eight wounded children, managing to help them get them into the school building as shots flew around him. Within 15 minutes, the police and emergency responders started showing up, but the shooting continued. They were trying to figure out where it was coming from. Officer Robert Robb was one of the first on the scene and went to help the children also. He was shot in the neck, the bullet grazing his jugular vein and lodging in his back. The police managed to evacuate the children through the rear of the school and get them on buses to safety. As the news of the shooting went out, a reporter from the San Diego Tribune, Stephen Wiegand, started calling homes in the area of the school to find eyewitnesses to talk to. His first call was to a house closest to Grover Cleveland Elementary School, the home of Wallace Spencer and his daughter Brenda, a junior at Patrick Henry High School. Mm, bullseye! In Wiegand's words in the 2009 NPR interview, So, when I called, a girl answered the phone, and I told her who I was, and I said, Can you see anything from where you are? And she said, Yeah, it's all... It's people running around, and there's a couple people shot. And I said, can you see where the shooting's coming from? And she gave me the address. And I said, well, isn't that the address I just called? And she said, yeah, who do you think is doing the shooting? Oh, whoa. Wigan didn't really believe her at first, but they talked for a while. He asked her some questions. She told him she lived with her father. She was bored. The gun was a twenty-two rifle. He started to believe it really was her doing the shooting, so he asked her why. She said, I just don't like Mondays. Do you like Mondays? You know, it just livens up the day. I'm not sure if this is how the police realized who it was or if they had come up with the answer independently, but soon they were trying to get Brenda to give up and stop shooting. It had turned into a standoff. A San Diego officer whose name I couldn't get, even though I watched the documentary several times. I don't know. Did they say the name and it just... No, I didn't see it. it. I kept looking. No, they don't say... It was one of those things where they put the name on the screen. Oh. But he never... Every time he showed up, there was no name there. I even went back to the first time. Jesus. But he had like this... Uh, old-fashioned mustache. That's some bad reporting. He was the negotiator, too, it mm. looked like. He was calling to Brenda through a bullhorn, telling her to pick up the phone. A police officer described the scene as absolute, utter chaos. A reporter at the scene said people were running everywhere, police, paramedics, and called the situation a shooting gallery. One of the police on the scene had the idea to commandeer a garbage truck and park it in front of the school, blocking the shooter's view and the ability to hit any more targets. Mm. By the end of the siege... The responders were 100 San Diego police officers, 30 patrol units, and 20 SWAT team officers. Wow. Officer Robert Robb later said, I was a little pissed the SWAT team didn't blow the house away with her in it since he had been shot. Right. Was the dad home? No. He went to work. He went to work at like 7. Oh, okay. And then this started at about 8.20. She said she wasn't feeling well. Mm. Stayed home. At about 3.30 p.m., Brenda emerged from the house, quietly coming out the front door with the smashed front window where she had stood all morning shooting. She lay her weapon down and surrendered. She's lucky they didn't just shoot her when she walked out of the house. Well, nowadays they would I know. Everyone was shocked and aghast at the first sighting of the person who had held them hostage for over six hours. She was a petite young woman, only 5'2", and with a slight build, with long, vivid red hair and glasses. Victim Monica Selvik said, Quote, she's evil looking to me with those glasses and long red hair, (laughs) which made me laugh because it's like, 
Yeah. I mean, those things in and of themselves are not easy. The DA in charge of her parole, Richard Sachs, says her eyes in the booking photos show, quote, emotional distress. Then he says that you can tell by looking at them. She's very, she's a very dangerous individual. What is this, the, like, 1600s or something? No shit. To me, her eyes look just devoid of emotion. Yeah. She has, like, dead looking eyes. There's obviously something wrong with the girl. Yeah. Within a month... Brenda had pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and assault with a deadly weapon. How many people died? Two. Okay. How many people were injured? Uh, Nine. Okay. Eight children were injured. Robert Robb was injured, and then the two adults. Within a month, Brenda had pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder for Principal Rag and custodian Michael Sucker and assault with a deadly weapon. Because of her age, 16, she was not eligible for the death penalty, though her victims and families, many of them, Anyway, wished wished it for her. I'm sure they did. She also was going to be tried as an adult. I thought California didn't have the death penalty. They did back then. Oh, okay. Remember, they reversed it because then Charlie Manson. Oh, that's right. Manson. Right, Charlie Manson. Instead, she got 25 years to life with the possibility of parole. It was a plea agreement. Right. She would have gotten maybe life without parole or right. something. So who was this young woman who gave such a seemingly callous response to mm. the question of why? What would compel somebody to do something like that? Brenda Ann Spencer was born April 3rd, 1962. Her parents, Dot and Wally, divorced when Brenda was nine. She had two siblings, an older brother and sister. According to Dot, Wally got custody of the children because he got the two older kids to say they wanted to live with him, and the judge didn't want to break up the family. Wally had a bit of a different story. He said he, quote, went to court and fought for his kids Mm. because he loved them. Right, Dad. And there are two different stories as far as the divorce goes as well. There always are. Dot said that Wally fooled around all the time. She said one day he came to her and asked her if he could leave for a year and would she take him back if he did. He already had an apartment rented for Mm. this purpose. She laughed and said no. And a few days later, she filed for divorce. Yeah, good for her. Wally says, his side of it, there were rumors that he was unfaithful, and that's why Dot left. But she was wrong. He was never fooling around. I I find Dot's story more credible. Yeah, and if you see them when they're interviewed, you would find her more credible. She she seems like, you know, they're both old now. And she's kind of um, one of those women that's kind of a butchy old lady. Mm, Oh, like me? More than you. Dot said that Brenda was an active child and no trouble in school. Other people say Brenda was Wally's favorite child. Mm. One childhood neighbor of Brenda's, and this was on that shitty, I watched some, I watched a bunch of different things. There was a really shitty documentary on YouTube that's like, I think it's like only 13 minutes long. And um, it was very sensationalistic, but we'll talk about it more. I, yeah. I couldn't find the who the original producer was, but it was just on Female Killers channel on YouTube. So. <laughs> the Female Killers. There is. And yeah. so was actually the other documentary, which was better. But Right. Um, I'll have to watch them. I'll link them to our web page yes. when I so, update it. So this childhood neighbor said Brenda was a bully as a child. She said that she brought her Barbie doll over to Brenda's when she was five, and Brenda pulled the head off. <laughs> Some profiler on this documentary said that doll mutilation is common in children who kill or stalk. Uh-oh. They are taking out their rage against the doll owner on the doll. We need to be very, very They are recreating <laughs> abuse that's been done to them on the doll. 
<laughs> and I call I call bullshit on this. Well, just think of what happened in our family to the I know, Sunshine I was gonna family. I going to say, every kid I know is a killer. To all the Barbies. I'm going to post a picture on our website of what my daughter did to her Barbies because I tweeted it. Well, your, got lots well your, your daughter's only seven, so she's got a lot. But Yeah, but Brenda was five when this happened. But, no, but what I'm saying is we don't know, I know about her. But I can tell you, nobody in our family that we know of has ever killed but anybody. Every, but look at all the dolls. Remember that time yeah, what Jimmy did to the Sunshine family? Yes, but pretty much every kid I know, does that to saying. dolls. Yes. Like, I think we agree almost on every that. Kid. I don't think we disagree. They ask anyone that has kids what they did to their dolls. I, I don't like talking to people with kids because all they talk about is their kids. At the time of the shooting, Dot would not speak to the media. She later said this was because she was afraid of what she might say because she was upset with the treatment of Brenda by the news outlets. She said that that was her little girl, not a monster. Mm-hmm. Dot worked as a bookkeeper or something, I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> One of those jobs. At a casino north of San Diego called Tory Pines. One of her tasks was counting the take. At the time of the shooting, she was in the middle of counting money with a pile of cash in front of her. She says the TV was on and she was aware of the shooting. The police called her and said she had to come with them, that Brenda was involved in a standoff. Dot said no, she couldn't leave. She had a bunch of money to count. The police insisted, so she did go. Someone else used this incident as an example. I can't remember who it was. Somebody on one of the things I was watching or reading used this incident as an example of how cold and uncaring Dot was as a mother. She didn't even want to leave work when her daughter was involved in a crisis, mm. according to them. I don't know. It's, you know, sometimes well, it's just you're in shock and you're like, wait a minute, I can't. Right. I'm doing right. this. You know, your, your brain hasn't right. caught like, up. Like somebody gets arrested for murdering somebody and they say, I have a math test tomorrow so you need to make this quick kind of thing yeah. people don't necessarily register what's going on yeah. when it's something really shocking also it's another one of those things where and you'll probably get into this later we have very limited information yeah. about what really happened yeah. during brenda's 2005 parole hearing she was asked if her mother had sent a letter of support brenda said that she hadn't seen her mother in five years she told the parole board she didn't spend a lot of time with Dot after the divorce either. Wally said that Dot didn't really make an effort to see her children after they broke up. Dot said this wasn't true. She said she would often come home from work to find Brenda on her front steps. She said she saw Brenda once a week or so, and they often spent part of the weekend together. I would take Brenda's word over Dot's. Yeah. I think Dot is maybe remembering things. You know how sometimes you think of things a little bit more rosy than they really yes. were? But in a 1993 interview... Brenda said that after the divorce, she was like a latchkey kid, and her situation was one of neglect. Again, at the 2005 parole hearing, Brenda was asked about her father. She said she had become friends with him. Indeed, Wally had visited Brenda every Saturday since 1979 when she was imprisoned, wow. driving the five-hour round trip to the California Institution for Women in Chino. And I'll also say that I watched that shitty interview on YouTube, and then I watched this better one, that was from 2006, which is called I Don't Like Mondays. And some British guy that I can't remember. I didn't see the credits because it was cut off because I watched it on YouTube. Yeah, it's hard. But anyway, um, they had that footage of her 2005 parole hearing, which was interesting. And they had a lot of good interviews. And the only good thing about that shittier one was they did have interviews with a couple people that other people didn't have interviews with. However, in 2001, Brenda told the parole board that her father had sexually abused her for years. The chairman of the parole committee rejected this claim and questioned why she hadn't come forward sooner. 
At the time, the parole boards felt that she was bringing this up this abuse as an excuse for what she did. But we know that sometimes people don't bring it up right away. That's right. In the 1993 interview, Brenda said she had been smoking pot laced with PCP, taking pills and drinking. She said she had been hallucinating at the time of the shooting, thinking that she was under attack by some kind of commandos and army gear. Toxicology screenings at the time showed no signs of alcohol or drugs in her system. I haven't seen any instances of her mentioning this in later hearings about the hallucinating, but she hasn't done any interviews either, so I don't know. Right, and one thing could be when people, especially when you're looking back and there are difficult psychological questions to answer about why you did something, sometimes it's just easier to make something up. And, you know, talk about bad information. Wikipedia says there were alcohol bottles strewn around the house. Another um, source I read said there was just... Well, you know, the great thing about Wikipedia is it, it, you know it's right because <laughs> anyone who wants to can put anything in Another it. source said that Molly didn't drink at all and there wasn't any alcohol in the house, but there was a Southern Comfort bottle near her where she had been shooting, but she didn't have any alcohol in her system. So I don't really know. I, I don't think that she actually was under the influence of drugs. I think she was just saying that as a way to explain it. But I do think she had some kind of psychotic break. That's just yeah. me as not a professional, you know, pulling that out of my ass. But also some of the tests at the time might have not have been accurate. Or who knows if they actually did one. I mean, I don't right. even know. Right. I mean, we hear so much stuff about... They say they did one, but whatever. You know, when I, it I was also of- six hours later. When Brenda brought up the abuse at her 2005 parole hearing, the chairman at that time did not dismiss it. Instead, he told her it was good she was making a breakthrough and trying to figure out why she did what she did. But she did not make parole, and it was shelved until 2009. Brenda's lawyer at the time of her arrest was Michael McGlynn. He followed her case through the years. He said he did not think she would harm anyone again. He described Wally as bitter and misanthropic. He said that Dot was very cold and had no relationship with Brenda. He said at the time of her arrest, one of his assistants found out from Brenda that Brenda shared a bed with her father. Ew. So people knew shit was happening back then. She had said stuff back then. Right. No one did anything or no. said anything about it. She didn't go to trial, so you know, it right. didn't come up. When Dot was asked if she knew that they shared a bed in the 2006 interview, She said she did know that, unfortunately, but thought it actually was just a mattress on the floor, not even a bed. Oh, okay, well then... No, she didn't know. She was just saying, yes, I know. And she said, actually, it wasn't a mattress. When asked if she thought Wally had molested Brenda, Dot said she had her suspicions, but Brenda would never tell her anything. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she knew at the time they were doing it that that they were sharing a bed, but I think think she found out later. later, When asked if she would have pursued it, having more information, she said she couldn't have afforded an attorney to sue him for custody or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the 2006 documentary, I Don't Like Mondays, was the one that all these interviews came from, most of them. They have an interview with Wally, who has fucking crazy eyes, by the way. (laughs) He has those fucking eyes that are like, Like I had read that one place that he didn't drink, but there's something going on with that guy. Yeah. He denied ever having an inappropriate relationship with his daughter. He acted like he had never heard that allegation before, which is weird because from my reading, it first came up in 2001. Mm -hmm. 
And at the time of this interview, they had just been to the hearing, the 2005 right. hearing, and the reporter asked him, he said, yesterday at the hearing, Brenda said that you abused her. He's like, what? I never did that before. Yeah. And then he said he would take a lie detector test to prove it wasn't true, but they were just like, yeah, right, buddy. Yeah, whatever. In any case, he said, no matter what Brenda said, she's his daughter, he loves her, and he will continue to visit her weekly as he has for uh. years. One of the people interviewed in that documentary was Brenda's high school English teacher. I think his name was Donald Bassett. He said she was quiet and never one you would think would be violent. Mm. He said she seemed harmless, and sometimes he'd have to ask her if she was awake in class. She was mm. one of those, you know those kids that are really quiet and just yes. sit there. He said he didn't see her hanging out with other kids, and she didn't seem to have any friends. According to Dot... Wally was this way, too. She called him a loner. She said he never wanted to go out and do anything or go to football games or bowling or whatever it was she liked to do. Mm-hmm. And in the interview with Brenda in 1993, she said the reason she started shooting at the school was she knew the police would show up and she was hoping they would shoot her. She says I was. She said, I was trying to get myself killed. Dot said a few months before the shooting in the fall of 1978, Brenda was sent to a special school program. She had been having trouble at school mostly because of truancy. She was evaluated, and Wally and Dot were told she was potentially suicidal and should be taken to counseling. When Dot was asked what she did about this when that she found out, she said she didn't do anything. She thought Wally would take care of oh, it. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, Wally lived with... So she's making it sound like she was around Brenda a lot, but she really wasn't. Yeah. I mean, no, you know, she doesn't seem that bad oh. a person, but... Wally, in his in his interview, when they asked him about it, said he doesn't know where that suicidal idea came from. Brenda seemed fine to him. Mm. Brenda asked <laughs> Wally for a radio for Christmas that year. Instead, he bought her a Ruger 10-22 semi-automatic 22 caliber rifle, which I don't know anything about guns. So and over, she said radio, and he heard Ruger. And over 500 rounds of ammunition. Oh, okay. Everyone interviewed, except Wally, shook their heads in disbelief at, at this gift. As um, I am doing now. Wally, for his part, said it's no one's damn business why he bought her the rifle. But he said that he and Brenna liked to go shooting in the mountains, and he thought she would like the gift. Yeah. And when he was asked if she had asked him for the gun, he emphatically said no. She did not ask me. Brenda said she thought he bought her the rifle because he wanted her to kill herself. Mm. But I think he would have bought, bought, probably bought her a handgun. And the other thing is, too, maybe Wally did. People don't always do the exact logical thing when you think something out would be the most... If you wanted to buy somebody a gun to kill themselves, it doesn't follow that everybody that somebody doing that would get the I don't the think most, he did anyway. Yeah, I think okay. he's just an idiot. Yeah. Doc. Well, actually, her perception of why he bought it is almost oh, more important yes, than the reality yes, of is. why you he bought it. You are correct. A gun expert on the 2006 documentary describes 22 rifles... As as the weapon of choice for young school shooters because they are light and have very little, if any, recoil. Well, that was then. Now we know they're yes. AR-15s. Well, yeah, that was, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, that was uh, 12 years ago. Brenda was described by many people interviewed as a good markswoman, both by people who had witnessed her target shooting and by the police, mm. based on the number of rounds fired versus how many targets hit. Brenda claimed at one point that she was not shooting to kill, not shooting to kill the children at least. She has changed her story many times over the years, though, and there have been a lot of claims about things she has said about bagging a pig and stuff like that that she may or may not have said. Yeah. You know how people are. And the other thing, even cops will tell you, like when people say when a cop shoots somebody, well, why didn't he just shoot him in the knee? And You, you don't can't. shoot. When you shoot, you shoot to kill. Especially moving targets where moving, you don't yes. know where they're going to... Yeah. 
Where they talk and also the and children, children are so small they're smaller that, and harder to hit. And so if you do hit one, your chances I, she's lucky none of them did die. Yeah, but they're the adults who died were bigger. Yeah, they were moving differently, and they're probably just easier to get a good beat on. Yeah, because I always think anytime you're shooting a gun at somebody, right, and you're, say you're trying too. to kill them. Yeah. And here's an interesting side note about Wally. I think it sheds light on the claims he abused his daughter. Within a year of Brenda going to prison, Wally remarried. Mm. Michael McGlynn, Brenda's attorney, received a call from one of the detectives who asked him why Brenda was out of prison. And he was like, what? And it turns out Brenda's cellmate at the juvenile holding facility, Sheila, was a bit younger than Brenda. That's how she met Wally. According to Dot, when Sheila was released, she was sent to a halfway house. She ran away from there and went to Wally. She got pregnant and married, and she looked strikingly like Brenda. So oh. she was like 16. Wow. Not long after her daughter was born, Sheila left Wally and left her daughter with him. Oh, no. Wally would not say anything about Sheila except that she didn't want her daughter. That's all he would say in the interview. He's like, I'm not talking about her. 25 years later, the documentary reporter said that the daughter was friendly and still living with Wally and attending the university but didn't want to be interviewed. Among the other people interviewed in the I Don't Like Mondays documentary was Burton Ragg's daughter, Penny Buckley, and his wife, Kathy. Penny talked the most. Kathy didn't really say much. She just sat there and nodded. Oh, and Kathy has kept the house exactly the same. Since Since 1979? since the day her husband died. It's probably kind of interesting. Avocado kitchen cabinets, a little Brady stuff, some shag rugs. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Penny recalled how she was home all that day. She was... I think in her 20s at the time, with the TV on and all the news was about the shooting. She remembered, quote, anticipating daddy coming home so I could tell him before remembering that he was the one that was shot. Mm. She didn't blame Wally for the shooting, even though he bought Brenda the gun. She didn't think there was any excuse, even if the family was, quote, weird. But she did agree with the interviewer that the fact that Wally still lived in the same house is odd and that his marriage to Sheila was both gross and weird. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the interviewer asked everybody, so what do you think of... Yeah, yeah. They're like, ew. Yeah. At Brenda's 2005 parole hearing, she told the board how she now had marketable skills. She could drive a forklift, and that's what she wanted to do if she was going to get out of prison. Mm-hmm. Christopher Cowan, the law student assisting her, told the board that Brenda had spent the last 25 years trying to better herself. She had never gotten in trouble and was a model prisoner. When told this, Penny Buckley said... You know, maybe she goes to the bathroom on time, washes her hair when she's supposed to, and walks down the hallway without harassing somebody. Fine, a model prisoner does not a citizen make. Kathy, for her part, thought Brenda deserved the death penalty or no parole. Penny said, back then, 25 years ago, I thought, I'll be so old then it'll be different, but it's not. Hmm. At the end of her 2005 parole hearing, Brenda said, I realize nothing I do and no amount of time will bring Mr. Rag and Mr. Suker back. And I won't erase the fear and stuff I've given those kids and Mr. Rob. I just want them to know that I'm very sorry and I don't know how to make it up to them. But I try every day to make myself a better person because I don't want anything this horrible to ever happen again. It took the board only 15 minutes to decide that Brenda would not be paroled and her next hearing would be four years later in 2009. An article from June 2014 by Michael Daly in the Daily Beast talks about Brenda's 2009 parole hearing. Brenda was asked why she did it, why the school, and she said, because I knew that if I fired on the school, the police would show up and they would shoot me and kill me, and every time I had tried suicide in the previous year, I had screwed it up. When asked why she shot at people, she said she didn't intend to. She was trying to shoot at the parking lot. She did not recall how many rounds she had fired, which is estimated to be about 40. 
She didn't remember aiming at anybody. She vaguely remembered the police coming and victims taking cover. She was asked why she surrendered. What about her plan to get killed? And she said she had gotten scared. She told the board the gun had been a gift from her father. The commissioner of the parole board said that people described her dad as a decent man, and only she didn't. And she answered that her father liked to keep up appearances. When asked about her mother, she said my mother wasn't there. When asked, she confirmed that she and her father did share a bed. She told the board she was under the influence of drugs and alcohol, and they made her numb. She was asked if the sound of the children going to school made her angry, and she said no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was asked if she was envious of their happier lives, and she said no. She mm-hmm. was set on committing suicide. The commissioner told her he was sorry about all the things she had to go through, but couldn't understand why she felt she had to shoot at people. He pointed out that though she said she didn't intend to hit people, she did a pretty good job so, of it. So this was in 2009. Yes. And so they're asking somebody 40 who's in their... She's, no, she's probably 50. She was 43. Well, she, she's 47. She was 16. Yeah. And this was 40 years. No. It was in 1979. And this, this is 30, 2009. 30 years. 30 years. Oh, sorry. 30 years. In any case... Why she did something as a 16-year-old yes. and asking her for rational explanation yes. of it. Oh, well, that's what the parole board does. No, they ask if somebody's, they want to know you're sorry. The thing is, she's never going to live down saying, I don't like Mondays. No, she's not. Thank you, Bob Geldof. Geldof. He told her she could have just shot out the window. She could have done a lot of fucking things. And she said she hadn't thought her plan through well enough. She repeated she wasn't trying to hit anyone or doesn't remember trying to. He asked her if she remembered saying, I don't like Mondays. She said she could have said it, but it would have been the drugs and alcohol talk. She was just being a 16-year-old smartass. I know. According to the police negotiator, she said, this is what he said she said. It was fun to watch the children that had red and blue ski jackets on as they made perfect targets. And she, quote, liked to watch them squirm around after they'd been shot. The commissioner asked her if she had said that, and she replied it was entirely possible. He asked her again why did she go out of her way to harm so many innocent people, and Brenda said she didn't consider what she was doing. She didn't think it all the way through. The commissioner reminded Brenda of the victims and the damage her actions caused. He reminded her that she had said she didn't intend to harm anyone, and yet she shot at people as they went to help others. She still maintained that she did not intend to hurt anyone. He asked her if she was pretty good with the rifle, and she said, I don't know. The commissioner asked her if there had been any danger signs, and she told them how the psychiatrist recommended she be treated for her mental state as she was a danger to herself and others. But her father told them nothing was wrong with her and to leave them alone. And he bought her a gun for Christmas. She doesn't know why he bought her a gun. She asked for a radio. The San Diego District Attorney's Office sent a representative to the parole hearing. He told the parole board that the Saturday before the shooting... Brenda had told a friend to watch TV and listen to the radio because something was going to happen. Again, I don't know if that's true or not. Right. You know how kids are. Well, that DA wasn't the DA back then, right? No. Right. This is just a representative for the DA. No, but some kids said that she said that. Yeah. You know how kids are. He said that Brenda complained to the police negotiator that she shot Michael Sucre because he was getting in her way of shooting the kids. He also said the blood and urine samples tested clean and she was lying about being under the influence. Brenda's lawyer suggested the tests were not sensitive enough to detect the the substances in her system. He also reminded them of the alleged abuse and how Wally married a girl younger than Brenda who looked just like her. There were several victim impact statements that were read to the parole board. One was from Wilfred Sucre, Michael Sucre's son. Here's part of his statement talking about his mother, Valentina. 
We found her singing as she gardened in the backyard. We were all very upset and shocked on the way to the hospital because no one would tell us Michael's condition. When we arrived, we found him not in the hospital room, but down in the basement, dead. He had died trying to help the children and Principal Rag, killed by Ms. Spencer trying to liven up her Monday. His mother never recovered and died prematurely in 1991. Principal Rag's son, Steve, said, My dad and Mike were the only two to die that day. The kids they were trying to save all lived. Some of them were seriously injured, but all survived. I hope that somehow my dad and Mike know this. Brenda Spencer's parole was denied again, and she won't be up for parole again until 2019. Mm. So next year. All the living victims expressed lingering fear over their experiences. I can't imagine what it would be like to see my teacher and school custodian gunned down in front of me. All those I saw interviewed were still traumatized. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Robert Robb said in 2005, if Brenda got out, quote, I'd get my guns out, put them back together, and load them, because he thinks she'd try to finish the job. Mm. Yes, I mean, come right. on, buddy. And I about, have so much to say. <laughs> in about 2000, Brenda was distraught over a failed relationship in prison. The story is she took a hot paper clip and scratched the words, courage and pride on her chest Hmm. the daily beast article mentions this saying she doesn't see the irony but when asked about the self-mutilation or branding i would say at her 2005 parole hearing which was nine years before this article brenda says this is not correct what she branded on herself were runes that stand for unforgiven and alone and i think those seem pretty apt and a couple just a couple things i have a lot to say but just about that in particular how does the daily beast know she doesn't see the irony yes there true. are ways to look at it that aren't ironic yes and well, the courage and the right and the yeah. pride and you know what she did and i'll say more about this when you're done stuff but what she did as a 16 year old you can't say that decades later she's not allowed to have feelings and affirmation for herself and also just get the fucking facts right if you're gonna if you're gonna shit on somebody get the facts right even if they did kill people well did they see them i'd like to see i'd like to see it is it runes is it is it words i don't know everyone has to mention the fucking song by the boomtown rats which i like the song i always liked um but disagree with a few things i've been reading and first of all as i said they're not punk first of all the song isn't a police report i know i know that's true I heard one take on the song and that said it was a comment on the nihilism of the teenage years and fit in with the punk attitude that life doesn't matter, which I agree with some of that. And I agree that Brenda had no will to live. And since she didn't care about her own life, she probably didn't care about others. And like many teenagers, she was lonely, bored, frustrated, and had the need to do something, anything to just you know right but it seems like a lot of people focus on brenda's explanation and take it at face value which i think is silly ridiculous and when the song says she can see no reason because there are no reasons what reason do you need to be shown i always felt like she gave a shit reason because she didn't know why and there isn't a good reason like when he says what reason do you need i always feel that when people want to know a reason for something there isn't a reason like you need a reason but there isn't one that's how i feel the song i don't think he's saying i always felt first of all the song stemmed from him hearing a good line. He actually was in an interview in Athens, Georgia, at a college radio station, and they had a wire machine in there, a teletype machine or a wire machine. Yeah. And he saw that come, that story come over the wire, and he read what she said and wrote right. the song. It's not like, I'm going to write this song that speaks to a generation and have this deep philosophical meaning. It's like a lot of writers see, wow, that's a, that's a good line right there. I'm going to... And it kind of just... I've always interpreted the song the same way that... 
the person who said that was almost dead inside, and that was just a... Right. Like, do, do you have the lyrics? It's, the silicone chip inside her yeah. head it's was switched to overload. overload. So, in other words, Bob Geldof, if nobody else recognizes that she's just not a normal, rational person no. who evilly decides she's going to shoot people, but there's something wrong in the girl's head. Yes. I mean, we could go line by line and dissect the song, and she, but But don't. she, I always felt like she was just like, I don't know, you know, and that's just a, an answer you give, and actually... And another funny, thing, if I were 16, and I had done something, you know, maybe not shot people, but if I had done something wrong, and I probably did as a teenager, and somebody said, especially a reporter, I didn't know, said, why did you do that? I would give them an asshole answer. Well, the funny thing. Or a smart-ass answer or a fake, brave answer. At the end of the um, documentary, I Don't Like Mondays, they ask a bunch of the people about the song, and Crystal Hardy says something about, like, oh, I always liked that song. I thought it was a pretty song, even though she knew what it, she right. knew what it was about. And Penny Buckley, who's the principal's daughter, says, well, that was just dumb things she said, so which they, is interesting yeah. that she doesn't. And some other people are saying, I don't want any reminder of it, and I understand right. that, too. One person was upset that, oh, it wasn't an article I read. It was a DA person, that he, Bob Geldof's making money off a of tragedy. It's like, give me a well, fucking break. What about all the people who write songs yeah, that's about the Titanic? Art. I, know. I know. But also... <laughs> the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's not the Titanic. I'm yeah, sorry. No, but also, like... Um, Casey Jones. <laughs> <laughs> he said... I saw an interview with him that he said something like, she wrote to him and said, thank you for making me famous, which I, I, I doubt, doubt she it. did. I don't believe it, he, that she said that. No. And it's like, he has a right to write about whatever the fuck right. he wants. Right. He and does. I like that song. So, yeah, me too. You know, I've always whatever. liked that song. So that was my story well, about Brenda. The other thing is, people keep calling her the first school shooter. Oh, no, she wasn't. The grandmother of school shooters. She, no. She's a sniper. Right. She's like Charles Whitman, who right. was before her. Right, Texas. She didn't go into Tower. her own school and start shooting people. Right. Well, of course, what's his name? She shot didn't. kids at a school, and she's not the first one who had ever done it. No. And had there not been a song about her, she'd probably be out of jail by now. Yeah, I'm sure. Every parole hearing, they brought up what she said, and I right. don't think she'll ever well, get out of jail. first of all, let's just go for a default here so I don't have to keep saying it and you don't have to say it. Nothing we say is excusing the fact that she killed people or negating the pain of the victims or the families. No. When something tragic happens, people like to go to these extremes of, you know, everything's black and white. Yes. Everything. Yes. And she was a 16-year-old. It was 1979, and I was... Um, I was a, that was the year I graduated from high school, so she and I are around the same age. And I can tell you, back then, shit happened to people, and nobody talked about it. Nobody understood the psychological issues that led to certain things. If somebody was being sexually abused like she probably was, it certainly wasn't talked about, and it wasn't believed. And Um, it's still not believed. And the psychology of a teenage girl who's neither of whose parents gave a shit about what was going on with her and she was quiet she didn't apparently have any friends or a safety net so she had major issues but the fact that people want especially all these decades later her to rationally explain why she did what she did as a 16 year old and somehow make them understand it is, I, I think, is really tone deaf on the part of any parole board. Well, she's, I mean, I watched the 2005. I saw her on that. I mean, I don't think she was acting for the, she seems very, was, contri- she's, I think it was an impulsive thing. She had a gun and a lot of ammo that her dad gave her. 
And when people say, oh, well, if you were only shooting, why did you do this? Why did you do that? A 16-year-old isn't going to plan. A 16-year-old isn't going to make certain connections between if I do this, then this is going to happen. You know, people love, especially now with all the cop shows on TV, people love to sit there and say, well, somebody who did this wouldn't do that. Somebody who did this wouldn't do that. She's a very troubled teenage kid. And again, not making excuses for her, but I fully believe a... She's like, I'm just going to shoot at people and didn't think of the circumstances or the consequences. Or like you said, she was suicidal. So other people's lives didn't have a big impact either. And I also don't think that her whatever remarks she would have said. And if she was there for six hours, she said a lot of shit. I know. And she was obviously having issues. And so they take these certain things out of context. I defy anyone out there to let somebody take things they said when they were 16. I know, I was just thinking that. Or things you did, like explain stuff you did when you were 16. I did some things that somebody said, why did you do, a lot of stuff you wouldn't even remember. I I mean, obviously killing somebody you wouldn't. And I understand how families feel. Mm -hmm. And I'm not. No, yes. And I I don't want to, and I know this is going to sound bad, but I'm going to say it anyway because that's the kind of person I am. Whenever I see families talk on a, on a true crime documentary or in a newspaper story or story I'm editing, I kind of know what they're going to say. I kind of know where they're coming from. And my feeling is, yes, that's how they feel, but that's why you don't put them on the jury if this person goes to trial either. Their family member was killed. But that doesn't mean that she was just this evil person who, you know, in fact, I don't even really like the word evil because it oversimplifies everything. Right, and I'm not saying people should be allowed to get away with murder, but again, and I've said it so many times, when we have this kind of us and them mentality, there's us, there's all the good people who would never do anything bad, who judge people on their merits, and we're also giving and wonderful and moral on our high horse. And then there's bad, evil people who do bad things that we would never do. And there's no gray area of somebody who's being abused, somebody who has no support system, somebody who obviously has emotional and psychological issues and isn't getting any help, somebody who's who tried to get help, somebody who's sleep. she's 16 years old, she's sleeping in her fucking father's bed and so if that's happening at home what the fuck else is happening the other at home? T- the other two were older and they were out of the house so right so, they were alone so what the- else yes. the hell is going on there and who's she going to talk to about it and i don't give credit when people who barely know so oh he's a decent guy he's a de- how many fucking people have we heard he's a decent guy about Please. you know the lack of understanding and you know i can kind of see it in 1979 but like the parole board now and i don't know who people are on parole although the, no, the the 2005 guy was actually seemed more empathetic i don't feel like anyone oh no that be, was the 2009 one Never right mind. i don't feel like anyone should be beholden no matter how bad it was to something they did when they were 16 and in a really shitty state and also i bet you there's a lot there's probably thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the u.s who have done worse than what she has and are no longer incarcerated know, for it. I know. And if it weren't for the song, and I like the song, but if it weren't for the song, first of all, we wouldn't even remember who she is because she killed two people. Not Right now, tell me the name of the guy in Vegas who killed the 50-plus people. What's his name? I know. I don't know. I can't remember, right? What I'm saying is, and I'm not demeaning the fact that she killed two people, but I think she's being unfairly treated. The fact that she was 16 when she did it and was... 
tried as an adult or charged as an adult. It was because they said it was, at the time it was the law because of the seriousness of the crime that she was tried as an adult. Well, she was going to be tried as an adult. But, you know, people who expect rational explanations or a 16-year-old, even one who isn't troubled to act rationally all the time or to explain... Well, that's why you don't give them a fucking gun. Right, or or to explain why they said or did what they said or did. But also, can I tell a real quick story about the reporter? Why, you know him? No, but, you know, this whole thing about calling, you know, people, which we did back then when something was going on. But in 1987, September 1987, and it was pre-internet, I wish I could, I had saved the newspaper, but I don't have it now. I was working in Manchester, New Hampshire, and there was this restaurant out on the outskirts of town, The Yard, and there was a sniper. Ooh. And a couple people were shot, and not seriously. One guy, like, it was his earlobe Ah. and something. People coming out into the back parking lot. And so, as always, we got sent out there. No! And it was me, and it was Rob Percy, who was another reporter, but he was what they called a combo at the time, where he also carried a camera. So he went as a photographer, because the other photographers, I don't know, taking photos at a football game (laughs) or something. And I went, and the police had it all blocked off. But our cousin, Jackie and Tony, lived near there and i knew that from their house you could go through the woods and get to this little subdivision that was on this road where that restaurant the restaurant was on mammoth road in manchester so we parked in jackie and tony's driveway i called from there and told my boss harry harry von haslin what we were doing we went through the woods and we got to the edge of the woods and there there were these houses they were like ranches and split levels typical and there was a backyard and the houses were on the road, and the restaurant was across the road. And we could see in the house whose yard we were in, there was a guy in there, and he was on the phone. And I said to Rob, let's go ask that guy if we can go in his house and look around. <laughs> and Rob's like, oh, no, I don't want to. He'll, if he ever hears this, he probably wouldn't. But he, um, he's a British guy, but he, he probably would deny that. But he was very reluctant. And I'm like, oh, let's go, because I wanted to get the story, and I didn't want to get in trouble. I wanted to come back with the story. And so we go in, and it was a young guy in his 20s. He had a military uniform hanging on a hanger on a door. <laughs> um, he was very happy to talk to us, very talkative, pointed things out. We looked out the window. We saw what was going on. The shooting had apparently stopped. The police were out there. And, <laughs> and he shared with us that he had been a sniper in um, the National Guard or the Army and explained, uh, uh, you know, where he thought, what he thought had happened and blah, blah, blah. And we were in there for probably an hour and I had a very nice conversation and had a nice story. I went out and talked to neighbors. And some of his neighbors Kind of, they didn't want to say a lot. Yeah, I was just talking about the shooting when they let people start coming out again. Somebody said somebody in the neighborhood had shot their cats. <gasps> they thought it might be the guy I had been talking to, but weren't sure. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, do, do, do. And it was, I, you know, I went back to the office, wrote my story, came in the next day, and the night city editor, Don Anderson, said, hey, they arrested somebody. And I'm like, oh, who was it? And he goes, well, we have... We have his mugshot here. The police, <laughs> that we somebody had gone over to the station to get the mugshot because this was 1987, so nobody yeah. was emailing anything. And I looked, and I'm like, oh, that's the guy whose house I was in. <laughs> and so I got to write a first-person thing. I was in the oh my god! House. And Rob Percy's wife was very angry, apparently, that I had put her husband in danger. Oh please! But and I would have been 26. So years that's old. how you stopped the shooting, basically, by knocking on the talking to the guy. To you. Yeah, but uh, I was 26 at the time. Oh, my and, God. But then he wasn't, 
The people he had shot were not seriously hurt. I don't think anyone even had to stay overnight in the hospital. Well, he wasn't a very good sniper then. But they had used used surveying equipment to determine where the shots had been coming from. And I'm not sure what else happened, but it all got thrown out of court because they had somehow collected evidence wrong. And I don't think he was ever convicted. His name was Lawrence something. I can't remember what his last name was. O'Donnell. Yeah. yeah. MSNBC. <laughs> but no, but I just thought it was funny when the reporter was calling and got her, and I had forgotten about that part <laughs> That's of the story. So funny. It's like shit like that can happen. Yeah, it can. But anyway, back in the old days, when back in the olden days when he actually had to cold call people, and but that's what would happen when if something was happening, and you knew the address. We had these reverse things that had addresses yeah. and then people's name and phone yeah. books. You would start calling people. And say, what's going on on your street? Is there something going on on your street? We heard there's something going on. Wow. If, if you couldn't get over there for some reason. Interesting. But in any case, the and guy, I'm not saying people shouldn't be punished, even no. if they are having In fact, they asked all the people they had interviewed in that documentary, do you think she should be out? And this was when she was up for parole in 2005. Right. And the guy whose name I didn't have with the big mustache said, he had like a, um, what's his name? Yosemite Sam type of mustache. Yeah, the Fu Manchu mustache. He said, I try to be, you know, as a compassionate person, I'd say she's been in there over 25 years, and she served her time, and she should get out. But as a former cop, I say, no, leave her in there. And also, how we really need to look at, and that's one of the issues with our justice system, is the disparity of how people are treated, and also the misunderstanding, even with the recent, and I don't know how much we want to talk about the recent shooting, but the misunderstanding about, it, like I said, it's so easy to just label label people as evil. They did something awful. They're an evil person. Let's put them to death or put them away. Until we start understanding mental health issues and seeing red flags, and like we talked about with last week's podcast too, red flags that aren't some, just somebody beating the shit out of their wife, which even that isn't considered a red flag because most, not this girl, but most of the people involved in the mass shootings, the mass shootings in the double digits that we've seen are men or young men who have already committed domestic violence that people shoo away or killed animals that people shoo away is not a serious issue. Like people, I saw some people on TV laughing. Somebody had shot a couple goats, pregnant goat, at Smiling yes, Hill Farm. They did. And I saw some people on TV laughing about it. Who and I'm the like, fuck was laughing? I they don't want to say which TV goat. station the people were. They weren't like laughing, like oh ha ha, but kind of like it was this cute main story rather than if somebody but, is killing an animal. They yeah. have a serious mental health issue, yeah. and people should look out And now, out for you it. know what's weird is the same day I read that about the goat, there was a guy in up in uh, yeah. farther north whose yes. cow had been shot. A pregnant cow. A pregnant cow had been shot, and it's like, why don't we put these two things together? Isn't that and, weird? And then on the goat story, and the pregnant cow was a week or so ago. Right, and then. In the goat story on TV, not the same TV show where people were laughing, I, channel where, but they had a woman, and I remember this story because I was still working at my old job at the time, and it was in our territory. She had two prize cows who were shot with crossbows. I cross, remember that. Right, yeah. they were shot with crossbows, these beautiful black and white, Aww. Holstein, I think. I don't want to say the name of the cow and get it wrong. But people who do that, there's something wrong with them, and it's not like, oh, and it's different from being a hunter with yes. a license and going and shooting Hunting a deer. Something, it's when you're, different. When you're shooting somebody's fucking pregnant goat, and this was a goat that was involved in, like, therapy for people. Oh, they had such cute goats It was goats involved there. in the hug a goat 
program. Yes, they're very and, nice goats. And it's... We go there all the time. People, you know, people have to start understanding, stop brushing aside mental health issues, and start understanding that there isn't perfectly normal people and evil people, but there are people with serious issues, and those issues need to be addressed. And don't go cutting mental health help for people yeah and but also don't blame like don't blame people who are mentally ill for all the violent acts right but also when you have somebody saying your daughter is going to your daughter needs to be yeah she's either going to hurt harm herself or somebody else if you don't get her help don't just be like oh they don't know what they're talking about and then just get her a fucking rifle for christmas the biggest indictable offense aside from what brenda spencer did is the way her parents dealt with all the information they were getting in 1979 about her mental health and what to do about it. And the thing is, there's a lot of kids... The kid didn't have a chance. And if she didn't do what she did, she would have done something else awful. Maybe going to jail was the best thing that ever happened to her because she was actually taken care of there. Yeah. You know. Hmm. Although she did have a horrible mullet in 1993. Well, a lot of people... And she also... Bad mullets. The 90s was like a real bad decade for hair. So was the 80s. There are many women. Mass shooters, her... And the one, there was one she in the 80s. She doesn't even count as a mass shooter. The one they used to call G.I. Jane or something. Oh, yeah. You have to shoot four to be a mass shooter. Oh, well, she doesn't count. Or that. maybe three, yeah. But, uh, well, you know what I'm saying. Somebody right. that's, like, going to shoot up a place. Right. A lot of times it's a, it's a guy. It, almost always it's a guy. But there have been some women. Yeah, there have been. Yeah. I don't really count the women, well, I count them, but the women who are doing it with a guy, like the San Bernardino. Although she seemed to, yeah. I, I I'm not know. saying she was less guilty, but she, you know, it was part of a yeah, it's weird. influence. But, she, but anyway, well, thank you. You're welcome. So for our recommendations, we have something very special. We're unveiling, da-da-da, our new rating system. Yes. And we're basing it on Amber, who had the podcast Black Girl Watching. Black Girl Watching. She had certain criteria that she would rate TV shows and other things on. And based on the fact that she was black, watching it. Yes. And she invited other people to have their own rating yes. system. Yes. And I really enjoyed listening to her podcast and, we'll have to and her tweet to her and tell her that we took her that advice. We, so we have our own rating system, and we're calling it the Negative Nellies Watching. Yes. The NNWs. The reason we came up with the negative, it was actually my. We could idea. only think of negative. So I said, why doesn't everyone criteria? start out? Well, I had thought of the same thing. You just oh. said it before I did. Oh yeah. Okay. And our system can apply to anything true crime documentaries <laughs> mostly things having to do with crime books fiction tv shows movies movies and all the criteria may not apply like if it's a podcast yeah but everybody starts out with a 10 and i'll just go through it real fast and then we'll talk about each thing okay, okay. everyone starts out with a 10 and then they get a point taken away for bad reenactments and like i said if it's a podcast or a book it won't have that but they just don't get the point taken away for that yeah Narrative cliches, racial and gender obtuseness, or we can even say social obtuseness. Lack of good visuals, missing pieces, inaccuracy and anachronisms, storytelling, freshness, repetitiveness, and beating the drum. So those are ten things. So let's start with bad reenactments. Uh, Well, I think that speaks for itself. There are many. I can take... If there's just a very brief, like it's not people talking or acting, 
but almost just a very brief flash of something. Yeah, yeah. That's I can almost sometimes take okay. It, but the more reenactments, the the more I just can't stand it. There was I was watching on I think it was A and E called the Eleven, mm-hmm. and I had a lot of other issues with that. I had to stop watching it, and it's rare when I'll stop watching a true crime show or yeah, documentary. Yeah, I still But about it. these murders in Texas of young women. And the reenactments, and they were so repetitive, and they were so unnecessary. I almost feel like there's a lack of imagination. Yeah. It's easier to have... They're just filling the time. Right. right. Instead of finding footage and stuff, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. later. And sometimes the reenactments don't even match what I know. the facts. That shitty documentary I saw, that 13-minute one about Brenda Spencer. First of all, the girl that played her looked like a model dressed like her. Which is fine. The reenactment wasn't even accurate. The house wasn't accurate. They didn't have her firing out of the front door like she really did. She was firing out. It looked like a bedroom window and a brick house. I mean, none of it was accurate. Right. They don't even try. And then they kept showing still photographs of the reenactment, not the real thing. Make it look like the real thing, which is also annoying. That's brutal. It's like, at least show the real thing. That's when you were talking about, and I can't remember the episode number, of course, but the Nicole Cable murder. Didn't you say, like, oh, she yeah. had a reenactment of her riding with her mother in yeah. a car, and it's supposed to be, you know, this little Nor- town outside it, yeah, of Bangor, Maine, yeah. and it looked like some suburb yes. somewhere. Yes, silly. So bad reenactments, and I think that's the one that's easiest to explain. Ugh. The next one, narrative cliches. These are, like, tropes where the wife can't understand why the cop husband can't stay home with her God, and the kids know, more and why his one. job's always pulling the him away. The wife is always like a nag. The nagging wife. But cheating husband, nagging wife. Right. Um, and a lot of things are going to have stuff like that, but it, I think it depends on how, it, since it, these are subjective when we watch something, it's Well, how, also, I think narrative cliches, too, like descriptive cliches, like, she lit up the room when she walked in. Every single woman... He was a churchgoer. Every single woman on Dateline or 48 Hours that gets killed lit up the room. Right, when she they, had a yeah. smile that just... She was a friend to everyone. Yeah, people, it's like, give me yeah. a fucking yeah, break. So Maybe they were, but Jesus. So it's small things like what people say. And it's also bigger concept things, thematic cliches as well as... And I think the thematic cliche would would happen to me would be more of a... In a fiction. In a fiction thing would be more of an annoyance. Yes. Although, you know... Because in real life, if it's accurate, then... And and what really bugs me about the the narrative cliches, like, oh, she let up the room and stuff, is, again, I feel in a lot of ways it's lazy Yes, it was lazy, yeah. Because they don't delve to get real information about a person. And they don't give you anything specific. Right. About people liked her because she always brought chocolate chip cookies to work. Or I mean, why can't they just tell me something specific? Tell a story. She she found this puppy and she brought And then they always have to say she's beautiful, whether she is or not. Right. For women. And also the the whole thing, he was a churchgoer. Well, I think any of us who watch true crime, nothing against those of you who go to church, know that all it means if somebody's a churchgoer is that there's a certain day a week that they walk into a certain building and chant the same things as everyone else does. And other than that, it doesn't mean anything about their moral character different from those of us who aren't. So anyway, um, racial and gender obtuseness. There are there are small things like like a male nurse when it doesn't matter if the nurse was male oh, yeah. or female or the black neighbor or the Mexican neighbor yeah, when, when they it doesn't describe matter. someone that way I see that a lot in bad fiction but yeah. also in I stopped reading a true crime book because every time somebody was black 
the guy said it, whether it mattered or not. And on one hand, yeah, you want people to see the diversity, but there are other things to say it instead of as an adjective. Yeah. And also this goes to like making assumptions about things women would do or things men would do or things somebody who's gay would do. Or even descript- the way you, the way you uh, if it's fiction, the way you write your characters. Or even nonfiction, the way, like, oh, you, that's ne- you true never too. see jabbering or chattering when you're talking about white men. That's true. Somebody is jabbering or chattering if they're women. Or shrieking. Or if they're, or if they're talking in a foreign language, they're jabbering that's or true. chattering. That's true. Uh, so lack of good visuals. First of all, a true crime book, it's easy. No fucking pictures in your true crime ebook. That that bothers that brings me. me. I don't down. like that. I've got to see photographs. I want to see what people look like. Right. I and, have to see them. Yes. And true crime documentaries. Well, what I hate, and they do it especially on the TV ones like that shows, is you'll see the same pictures over and over again. Right, because those like, are the only ones they yeah, have. And it's like, oh, Jesus. And I like it, too, when they use different pictures to depict different moods. Like, yeah. I'm thinking, like, the 48 Hours about Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood. Uh, like, there's this particular crazed picture of him, and whenever yeah. when somebody talked about him acting weird or crazy, they'd show the crazy-looking yeah. picture. And But um, Robert Wagner, they, they should have had a lot of pictures of him. He's a yes. fucking famous actor. Yeah, and I know there's some, there's fair use, and I'm fully aware of that, and yes. copyright issues. I know some documentaries have more resources where they can get news footage. I feel like some people don't even try. I know. And one thing that bugs me, too, is on the Ken Burns style documentaries, you know, where they show, that just constantly show photos. But when you're not sure if the photo they're showing is of the people they're talking about, yeah. especially more historic ones, or to depict a scene that's not the people, if you're going to show like a bunch of kids standing in front of the schoolhouse, is this the young Theodore or Roosevelt just, or whoever or that you're talking about? Example. Or is it just a 19, an 1800s whatever photo of the... And the, one thing that you just reminded me of that I had in this last one, every time a person is on the screen talking, have their name yes. underneath them. Yes. Every time, because I cannot fucking remember who yes. they are, or I missed it the first time. You don't have to have it on the whole time they're talking, right. but, just but when they appear, it. can you have Especially their name? Especially if you have a lot of talking heads. Yes. And, um, and who, who they, they are. are. I hate it on the Oh, I hate it when they don't the say TV who they news, are. On the TV news, oh. they'll just show people talking, and it's like, well, this person's opinion matters in this way if it's, it, depending on who they are. They are they an expert? Are they a neighbor? Right. Are they just some fucking stupid person that you put on there for right. the hell of it? Because they, like, sometimes, like, you know, these stupid ones that have remembering the 80s or something, and they have people. Oh, I, I can't even watch those. And, well, I don't usually because they're stupid, but it's like. Who I don't, why do I care what, right. who, what, you know, like, what I hate on those is when they have Adam a, Carolla thinks of the 80s or right. something like what that. What I hate on those no and why I stop Adam. watching them is they have a bunch of different people telling a story that we all already know. Yes. And then they have a dozen different celebrities telling you the story. And I that, don't I don't shit. know if we have that. Oh, that's going to be coming up on redundancy, yeah. so. So lack of good visuals. Yes. And it can, that can mean a lot of different things. Yes. Missing pieces. Yeah. And I experienced this. I was listening to that new podcast, Disgraceland, the true crime about rock. And I felt there were, I'll just take the Sex Pistols one, that... He was, and he he kind of missed that this would it would get a low rating. Maybe I'll still listen, but it would get a low by the NNW rating system because first of all, negative Nelly. He right watching NNW, right. <laughs> first of all, like the gender obtuseness. I felt the Sex Pistols one was very misogynistic. Ooh. He blamed 
Sid Vicious's mother and Nancy Spungen for all Sid's bad behavior. Sid was a grown-up, and he chose to behave the way he did. Yes. And, and he, leaving out know, the fact that Nancy was mentally ill right, and that, had been her whole thing. life. Right, and that's the missing pieces one. Nancy Spungen had severe mental illness, which I don't think was even touched and on. And her mother wrote a book. The title is And I Don't Want to Live This Life. I don't know if it's still in print, but I read it a long time ago. I was probably early 20s when I read it and I didn't realize it was about Nancy until I got near the end when she died and I'm like oh that's this Nancy Nancy. it was a really good book obviously her mother's biased but she also admits that Nancy was a very hard person to live with but she was mentally ill her whole life and when she was a child there wasn't treatment for her because they didn't think children could be psychotic back in the 70s so right another example is when I was researching last week's podcast about Charlie Cullen the nurse serial killer Male nurse, the male nurse, male nurse nurse serial killer. And I found a uh, nurses who kill. It was just awful. It it probably would have gotten a zero on our rating. But and they focused mostly on the guy from the poison control center, which he was a good part of the story. And I know sometimes you want to find an angle to focus on. But the thing is, it left out huge, huge, huge chunks. The guy killed possibly as many as 400 people at nine hospitals. And it left so much, it left out how the hospitals covered it up. So, and I won't go into the whole thing. Sometimes when you're, if you're going to tell a story, you know, you need to have those pieces. Yeah, at least some. You know, pieces that explain why. Yeah, I've seen some where they, they left out something that you're, after the fact, you're like, wait a minute. Right. Right, and as we saw, like, even The Staircase, which was a multi-part documentary, and then I read a book about it, about that same case afterwards, Neither of them had that whole owl thing, so that must have come out later. But the book <laughs> you gotta had, watch out for those had, owls. The book had very important stuff in it that made it clear that that Michael Peterson did kill his wife, or had a lot more reason to kill his wife than this lengthy documentary. It it's had. just interesting that what you leave out is going to shape the story as much as what you put in, and that's why right. we want to know the whole thing. Right, and leaving something out. Sometimes we won't know the missing pieces right. until later. But. That's true. The next one is inaccuracy and anachronisms. I'll give you a good example of anachronisms. So the the show I've been watching would probably rate pretty low, but for some reason there must be... You don't have to... We're going to have to have some kind of a... Sometimes we have our guilty pleasures. I was going to say, maybe we have a... Yes, maybe what we'll have is like, well, I give this a pass because of... I don't know why. Right. Even though this ranks as a zero, I still like it. Which is a tr- crime to remember, which is, uh, I'm watching it on Hulu. It's on ID, too. So it's crimes that, it seems like they're six, 60s and earlier. has really bad reenactments. Mm-hmm. And the thing I hate about the reenactments is the language that's used. Mm. The way people talk and their mannerisms make no attempt to go from to the period where they are from. Yeah. So they're acting like people in the 2000s. They're talking like people do now. The And you know if you watch older movies people or older TV shows, like TV shows from the 70s, people's well, mannerisms are different. Also, and the phrases the and phrasing. the things they use and, and say, like, you don't get to do blah, blah, blah. Right. You didn't people say that in 1960. That. Right. In fact... That's one reason I started watching Mindhunter. And I had other issues with it too. And I, I, I'm I kind couldn't of interested, keep watching it. I'm kind of interested in the story itself. But I had to stop watching because the dialogue, there were so many phrases that are used now that weren't used in the 70s. And I was around in the 70s. And it's not like I memorized everything people said. But there are phrases that you kind of remember when people yes. started or when yep. they started coming into the vernacular. 
Yeah, so on Mine Hunters, dude, people weren't really calling. No. I know the word was used, but people didn't use it like, hey, dude, okay, dude. Like, no. his partner, that woman cop, is always calling them dude in a way no. that people weren't doing it in the 70s. Stalking wasn't a thing No, yet. it was not a word and, that we used. And, well, this is awkward. No. And, and the thing is, the well, this was awkward, his middle-aged, really uptight boss and this is like the 1970s yeah that or early 70s yeah. says it to him no i'm sorry it's just all wrong and the thing is it's like nobody even tries to get how people talk nobody mm. ever says it's not hard to leave out phrases it's not like you have to go back to the 70s and say okay you know everybody's calling everybody a turkey back then or whatever but you it, it, you don't have to necessarily add stuff, but don't put in stuff that's new. And it's not hard no. to And just out. because you weren't alive then, it, it just doesn't ring true. Like, to me, if something takes place, like I said, in the 30s, I wasn't born in the 30s, but I have watched a lot of old movies and stuff. Right. So you kind of know... It's like, remember way. that show, John Slattery was on it, and home Kyle Chandler, front, Home Front, which is still not out on DVD anyway. And it's, there's a Home Front now, but this wasn't it. This was in the 90s, I think. Yeah. And it was this small town after World War II. It was like in Ohio or something. And somewhere. they talked what I assume is the way people would have talked yes, in the 40s. I loved that show. And it was it was a fantastic show. But like Mindhunter, they take a lot of pains to put old cars and yeah. stuff in it. But, man, just don't be lazy. It sounds like a nitpicky thing, but we're the negative Nelly, so we can do it. Right. But that kind of thing will make me stop. I stopped it, watching it, it. It is. I'm interested in the story for my hunter, but the anachronisms, I just can't t- Maybe it's because I, I've been a book editor for a long time and that type of thing. That is the type of thing that I would go after in a book. And also, it has a lot of narrative cliches, uh-huh. um, f- male-female relationship cliches and that type of thing and inaccuracy when you're watching and this has happened many times when we're watching a true crime documentary and they say stuff that we know isn't true or they take some cliche like you were talking about oh they said that her uh, brand her courage pride brand with the daily beast oh yeah yeah oh yeah there's an inaccuracy but also i was thinking of ashley willette Whatever that true, oh, whatever that whatever crew time, yeah, the one with Chris Chris Hansen. The guy said she was found on a road in Saco, Maine. It's like no, she wasn't found on a road. She was found on a road in Scarborough, Maine. And she I know, was from Saco. And I know some people may say eh, Saco, Scarborough. Who gives a shit? Nobody except for people who live in Maine, and even some of them are going to know the difference. But it matters because if you're if you don't care about getting that stuff right, where do you draw yeah. the line? I just feel like you need to be accurate, as accurate as possible. Or if you don't know, say we're not sure. But right. this is what- and and part of the thing is you're telling a story. We're at least that's what we're doing. We're telling a story, and I'm not saying that we're like the uh, what everybody should aspire to, or <laughs> that we're perfect all the time. I we're am. obviously no. not, but. It's we feel it's important to be I accurate. Tried it. Like I was upset that I said that the little building on in the Ashley Willette one that I said that little building was cinder block because I always thought it was, and then when I went there to take photographs, I realized it's not. What is it? I don't know, but it's got that T11 stuff on it, that fiberboard stuff that's got like it looks like it's got grooves in oh, it. Oh yeah, okay. It's got that on. I didn't know what that's what it was. So I was kind of upset about that that I was wrong. Right, and we try to when we are wrong, we try to correct ourselves. But also we've done a lot of things where there's different accounts. Of yes, stuff and, and I we try, try to, to figure out yes. which is the right. And I also try to say there have been different accounts. Right. If you're on a higher level than us and you're making an actual true crime documentary that's on TV or 
or writing a book that people are going to read, you know, get it right. The next one is storytelling. Yeah. And storytelling can be a lot of things, but to me it's how, how do you frame it? For instance, last week we were talking about West Cork, and that was yes. a great piece of storytelling because they reeled out the information yes. over 13 episodes in a way that kept you, kept wanting, you to wanting to listen. That you that to you didn't feel right, that you didn't feel was unfair. There was suspense. This is something that's going to depend on the type of story. If it's a murder mystery you're reading, you don't want to know who the fucking murderer right. is, unless it's like a police procedural or something where like you Columbo. know right. you know who the murderer is, but that's not the story. What is the story? Is the story that somebody killed someone and you don't know who it is? Then you can't allow your plot to be so shitty that someone figures it right. out halfway through and they're bored. But there isn't it. one right way to have good storytelling. No. But you need you have to make your story whether it's nonfiction or fiction compelling yes. enough to and a lot of the other things we talk about are parts of good storytelling yes, and bad storytelling. That's true. And one of the things too is is a, a writer what they tell you is to play fair with the reader. Yes. In other words, if you're going to have a twist or a suspenseful ending or something, you have to give the readers the tools to appreciate it or know what to do with it or in a murder mystery when you reveal the murderer. Don't bring out a, what's it, how do you say it in Latin, the... The, do, the deus, de, deus de machina. machina. Yeah. The, the machine end. of God. Yeah. You have Which to, means you just pull something out of your ass but at the it, end. But in true crime, too, you can't keep all the information about, like, one person to yourself and never reveal it until the end and say, oh, by the way, there was this guy doing this yeah. the whole time. And I think the way in West Cork they did it where you, you're introduced to Ian Bailey as a journalist and then a few episodes in you find out, well... Which is good in a way. The way they do it is really good. Freshness. Freshness. Part of it is, are you telling me something I've never heard before? Yes. One thing about Disgraceland so far, and obviously we do podcasts too where people probably know more than we do about some of the stuff, but... He implies that we're going to be hearing, you know, stuff about these. And so far, maybe it's just because I'm old and I've been around a long time, but he didn't tell me anything about Jerry Lee Lewis or Sid Vicious and the crimes and or, and or murders or whatever surrounding them that I didn't already know. And the thing is, don't fucking give me the bullshit. Don't act like you're going to tell me something new right. and then not. And then if not. you're going to just be telling a tale, that's fine. Right. And also, and I know that, you know, with all the true crime podcasts, a lot of people do the same topics. Yeah. We do the same topics. People copy us. <laughs> no, but, and so I'm not saying, oh, people can't do the same topic. But, and some of this goes back to, like, narrative cliches and stuff, too. I don't want to know, like, when I'm watching a, a TV show, when you know in the first five minutes who did it and the the whole story arc it's going to take and every, it, you know, give me something new. Give I me know. something fresh. And also, one thing, and I guess it would kind of go on this, I get really tired of hearing people say... And I hear this more on podcasts than anything else. I didn't know anything about this. I know. I've never heard of this before. Well, good for you or bad for you, but when it's something really famous, yeah, like like for instance the Atlanta serial killer, um, it may it concerns me about how your storytelling and your research is going to go. I know. Because if you could go through life without hearing about this thing or that thing, how are you going to give me information? You I know. know about it that I can find credible. That's right. But uh, but when I'm reading, especially a book of fiction or even a book like a true crime book, I want to feel like I'm reading a fresh story and not just a recycled 
thing with maybe different names of characters, but we've seen it all before. Yeah, yeah. Like, especially, like, one thing in fiction that really bugs me, and this is in a lot of the first-time author books I had to read for that contest that I am no longer... Yes. That, that you're not writers... A, you're not, I'm not allowing you to take part in it. Thank anymore. you. Well, I'm not going to anyway. Dialogue that sounds like it's out of somebody movie. Oh, God. Please don't do that. Well, the <laughs> next one is repetition. That's what I was going to... Okay, yeah. I got something. This is one of my, and I'm sure yours, and everybody's mm. pet peeve. I don't fucking need... And this is something I will say on... 48 hours is the worst. You know what I'm going to say before I even say... But on... um. A crime to remember. This is something I fucking hate. They show a scene acted out. They'll say the guy's stabbing his victim. And then they have this supposed expert saying, and then he stabbed his victim. Like, we know. We, we just, just fucking saw it. Saw it. We just saw reenactment. Or, or the, the guy says, I'm going to kill you. And then they'll show, show the expert. And he said, I'm going to kill you. It's like, we fucking know. Right. Like, come on. Or or you have, like, what they do on 48 ah. Hours. Like, I'm thinking particularly of the Robert Wagner, Natalie Wood one that was on recently, where they just repeat the same thing over and over and over again maybe people have such short attention spans or they assume everybody's like looking at their phone or walking in and out of the room that they're only watching snatches of the show so they just have and and i was like three quarters of the way through it i'm like they haven't really said anything yet they just keep saying like they string it out and then they show or they'll show the same clip of a reenactment over and over again yes like someone's smacking somebody or something it's like okay we've seen it (laughs) or for instance in disgraceland the sid vicious one you can tell us once or twice twice what an awful mother Sid had but like especially towards the end of the episode like he he was just hitting you over the head and that kind of goes to our next thing but you know sometimes less is more yeah you know you and we can we as the listener or viewer or reader can figure out a lot of things right you don't need to keep spelling everything out the issue I have with repetitiveness aside from the example I gave about the Sid Vicious thing is more on true crime documentaries yes, on TV. Yes, they do it all the time. And on particularly 48 Hours, we're hearing the same words, the same I know. facts. They'll come back and tell the you the same thing. Over and it's and over, like, Jesus Christ, over. didn't you just tell me that? And also in books that aren't well edited, true crime books, where we're getting the same description of somebody or the same fact. Yeah. Or Well, what I don't like is if you're reading a series, for instance, and... When they introduce a character, they tell you almost the same thing every book. They can tell you who the person is a different way. They don't need to tell yeah. it almost exactly. Like if somebody <laughs> writes a series, granted I'm only on the third book, which is like the longest it's ever I taken know, to write a book it in the really history has. of writing. I'm just having a lot of... Um, it, it, you do want to, you know, you try when you're writing a series to make it fresh yes. for somebody who's read the other books you don't want to be repetitive but you also need to be sure there's information in there for people who haven't read the other ones to know who the characters are so you're trying to find that balance because you try to write your books that if they pick up book three yeah they don't have to have read one and two but yet one of my big issues with mystery novels and i was determined not to do when i wrote mine is when it's recurring characters, this horrible, because of mystery novels, horrible traumatic things have happened to these yes. people. And then it's a few months later, a year later, la-di-da, everybody's okay. It's like on the cartoon when, right. you know, uh, Anvil drops on your head. Yeah, and I'm like, I want my characters to be more relatable, and if this horrible shit happened to normal people who horrible shit doesn't normally happen, that three months later, 
they're going to be affected so by it, affected. so there's going to be yeah. references, so you want to be able to make those yeah, references. And, but you can. You do it right. well. And most no, good writers do it. I it's mean, work. A it lot is of, work. A lot of what we're talking about, and it's one thing that when I was judging the, um, self-published? the self-published Thank You Writing Contest, is that it's hard work. It's hard work to write a book. It's hard work to, I'm sure, make a documentary. But I think because there's a certain ease because of technology... People mistake the ease yeah. of the technology with the amount of effort they have to put in. And I'll speak to writing specifically since that's the thing I know about. You still have to work at it. You don't sit down and start with chapter one and write and write and write like you see on TV like Castle or somebody. And then, you know, the next week you have a book out. Even though I wrote as a journalist and everything where I could do it in a linear way, it's one step up and two step back. It's multiple, multiple, multiple revisions. It's listening to editing and writing advice from other people who read it and tell you something isn't working. It's not relying on cliches. And it's really thinking. I get to the point where I'm trying to think about every single word mm-hmm. I'm writing. You know, when I go through one of my revisions, I do go through for different things once the first draft is done. And I think people want it to be easy. As a reader or as somebody, a consumer of whatever art that we're talking about, the things that are done well are going to seem easy to right. you as you read them. You're not going to, things aren't going to stand out right. and jar you. Like, right. why the fuck is this guy saying, right. uh, you know, and, oh, this is awkward right. in 1975 or whatever right. when people didn't fucking say that. Right. And the problem is when something does jar you, it takes you out of the story, whether it's a TV show, you know, a true crime documentary, or a book. Mm-hmm. It takes you out of the story, it and does. you're thinking about that thing. And I know there are people who don't, as one of our sisters said once in the middle of an argument about whether a certain multi-billion seller writer, oh. Dan Brown, his books were good or not. She said, well, everybody isn't a fucking English major. And to which Billy, who was on my side, said, well, I wasn't an English major. But... um. Anyway, yeah. But I. I understand that people, like, for instance, we've talked before about Louise Penny. I like her books, but it bothers me that she changes point of yes. view in uh, amidst a scene. It takes me out of the story. Yes. And I've had a number of people say to me, well, I don't even notice that. It doesn't bother me. And that's great, but there are things that there are things that are going to bother people yes i mean louise penny just keep doing what you're doing because obviously you do it well and we know you listen to us but what i'm saying is for everybody else out there you want to take the time right on our rating system she would have a very high but the other thing is about that type of thing there are certain artists and I'm not talking about her, but that are able to do something that is somebody who's starting out can't do. Right. But put it this way. In that writing contest, I got this horrible mess of a jumbled piece of shit from some guy. That um, was me, by the way. And I put a guy's he, name on it. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it wasn't that contest. It was possibly something else because he responded to me. Maybe it was something I edited because his thing was, well, James Joyce looks <laughs> like this. And he's talking to the wrong person because I took a whole fucking semester of James Joyce and nothing but in college. And I said, when you are James Joyce, first of all, you can do whatever you want. But second of all, his were precision. It was like putting together a a building at what he did. You know, it's like somebody throwing a bunch of paint on a wall and saying, well, Jackson Pollock did this. I know, I know. There was thought behind what they did. You have to go by the rules to what's going to be the most accessible and entertaining to people. And then when you become this multi-billion seller millionaire artist, which very few people become, by the way, then you can start breaking the rules. 
Yeah. And then if you want to slack off and do it differently, go ahead. And, and, and also, she's Canadian, so I'm thinking maybe they have different rules. But also, <laughs> well, look at Stephen King. I mean, he can he can do whatever the fuck he wants. Right. Now. If he wants to write a, a, a book that's 1,500 pages, no one's going to say this book is way too long and he got to cut it. I mean, right. maybe his wife would or maybe somebody would. Yeah. But he's going to be like, well, fuck it. I can sell 10 King. million copies of it, so you can kiss my ass. Yeah. But he, yeah, he's Stephen King. He's yeah. not, you know, your buddy Josh that is pounding out his 1500 page fan fiction in the basement. You know what I mean? Right. So let's get to what we've been doing. Basically the last one is beating the drum. Beating the drum. And this can have a couple different meanings. One of the ones like one issue I have with 48 hours mystery is they're, they beat the drum for the death penalty all the time. I'm not saying don't mention the death penalty, but, you know, they make it sound like if somebody didn't get the death penalty, it's a big tragedy. And w- however you feel about the death penalty, I'm obviously, I don't think it's a secret that I'm against it. I don't want to get into a debate with the world on it right now. But to trivialize it, and I know families feel a certain way yes, when they're family and, members. And they have a right to. And they to. have a right to feel whatever way they need to feel. To make it the simplistic thing, and also, it trivializes how our justice system works. Well, I don't like it when things are didactic like that, especially when it's a journalism piece. It's like, you know what? I don't give a shit what you're... You just tell me the, right. the facts. Let me make up my mind. Yeah. We you can know, make you up can our own mind. they wanted the death penalty. And, and I don't like books that are pushing a certain right. agenda, and even if I agree with the right. agenda. And that's how I felt with that Sid Vicious Disgraceland okay, I get you think his mom is the worst mother ever because you've said it a hundred times. You know what? Show me, don't tell me. That's, That's another right. writing rule. That's right. We know the mom is bad. We've heard from you the mom is bad. You don't have to keep saying these yeah. words. This is the worst mother ever. Isn't she the most awful mother who ever lived? Because we can tell by her actions. Yes. And let us make up our own mind. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about a uh, book. It was Julia Spencer I'm Fleming. I'm picturing. <laughs> no, Julia Spencer Fleming wrote a book, which I, I love her. haven't read. I've only read a couple of her books. So I should read the whole series. But the one of my book group read, and she came to our book group. And she was very She's nice. She's a very nice woman. It was the debate about vaccinations and autism. Mm. And she had characters that represented both sides. You couldn't... You couldn't tell what her no. point of view was no. from reading it. In fact, one and thing... And she asked us about it at the book group, and we all agreed that you couldn't. She showed both sides in a good, balanced way. And I'm not saying you always have to do that. Right. But if, also, if a character... Say a character's racist or something, that's fine. You don't need to balance that off with right. someone who's not racist. I don't care. As long as we but know... It, there needs to be context. Yes, and if we know as a reader that this is the character thinking and not the author, that's fine. Right. But sometimes the way things are narrated, you can't tell, and that because really irritates me. Well, I'll give an example. One of those self-published books, and it was actually one that took place in Maine by somebody who lived in Maine, talked that about... That was me, too. Talk, <laughs> no, this wouldn't have been you, because listen to what I'm going to say. Talk about... How the Squaw Mountain, oh. the name had been changed by just a handful of liberals, who yeah. PC liberals, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not going to get into the whole debate about the offensiveness of Indian terminology in the white person's world here. But it was the writer's possibly point of view. But my note to him on that was, if you're going to express in a, in a book of fiction a strong opinion just blurt out a strong opinion. What you really need is some context for it and to counter it because 
it's not good storytelling. And it was just this throwaway sentence. The book wasn't about this. And if it's from a character's point of view, I feel like you need to have other characters. I don't think your characters have to get into a political debate. But I need, I feel like if you're going to have a character who's strongly leans one way or another politically, and I'm not just talking conservative, lefty too, you need other characters to like I said, not getting in arguments with them, but your book needs to show that everybody in your book isn't this way, yes. or this isn't a belief that you're trying to yeah. propose so much. And one neat thing about Julia Spencer Fleming's books is her protagonist, a, a woman, is an Episcopal priest. Yes. And despite that, I think she she does a really good job of relaying a kind of moral, moral and spiritual world and point of view without being overtly religious. Yes, and or preachy. Or preachy religious, because it, to me, as an atheist, one thing that bothers me is books that assume everybody's looking at something from a Christian point yeah. of view. Or, you know, I'll be reading a feature. I, this used to happen to me with Sports Illustrated when I used to get it years ago and everything. And the minute somebody starts crediting God for all their mm. good fortune or something, it gets boring to me. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anybody on that, but it, I don't want to hear about God being the person that helped you win the game mm-hmm. or whatever. I want to hear what you did, you know? And in book, works of fiction, when people start getting really overtly banging the drum on religion, I'm just not interested. I think you can show moral characters and spiritual characters, and like Julia Spencer Fleming does, without... and. Certain books I've read, mysteries, or the ones that are police procedurals, or like a mix of both. There's some mysteries that are kind of... I like to know, why did this person do it? There are people that commit crimes. They are Everyone's a human being. Everything's not black and white. Right. I don't like cardboard cutouts of people with... Sometimes this is how they're beating the drum, well, is every single character that does bad things is bad and this and and then right. the, and then the cops are all great and then they're you know and they're all the cops are always making these preachy comments and it's like give yes. me a fucking yeah. break and I hate TV shows that do that too I and know, a lot I of the procedurals t- on TV are like that it's always a choice if it's fiction whether it's a TV show or a book it's a choice because whoever wrote the script or wrote the book is putting that in there and if it's true crime it's a choice it's up to you to to do it in a way that's fair and depicts the story. Well, that's- so beating the drum can be a lot of things, but a lot of and it is le- just... And we beat the drum a lot, like right now. We, we do. We do. Yes, we're beating the drum. <laughs> That's what, how we roll on this podcast. We're drum beaters. I think this will help us when we're doing our recommendations. Right. We can talk about our rating system. And maybe we what we'll do is... Go over it once in a while. We'll put it on we'll our page. We'll put it on the website, too, so that you can... Uh, you can relive it you anytime can, you want. Right. And, and you may or may not agree with us, but you can have your own rating system. That's right. Everybody can have their own rating system. And we're not by this you rating... You might be positive poly watching. Yeah. And we're not by this rating system saying we're above all this or no, better than all this. we just want to give you some context as to what our criticisms are right. or something. Right. If you can say, why does she think that show sucks? Well, you'll right. know. Well, oh, you'll she know. sees... Right. Oh, I get that it. Can, or maybe you don't give a shit why, but then right. you wouldn't listen to us anyway. That's so. right. And so... Next week, it's my turn. I mean, next week, uh, next time, it's my turn. Ooh. I don't really want to say... Are you going to give a preview? Well, I kind of know what I want to do, but a lot can change. Yeah. So I, we do have some special guests coming up in the coming months. Yeah, so I, I need to fur things up with them. We just have to get our shit them. together. And, yeah. um, 
And I don't want to make them mad at me, so we've got to right. we've we, got to get them in here before they get annoyed with us. Yes, Hopefully, they don't know. listen to well, many. Well, I don't think they've listened. Our, so. No, nobody listens. So we're <laughs> but so you can find us. Our website is Crime and Stuff online. You can find us if you just look for Crime and Stuff on Twitter, on and Twitter, Facebook and stuff, iTunes podcast. Yeah. And rate us and review us. Yes. Donate. Please, the ratings right. go a long way. So that's this week's show. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. The DA in charge of her parole, Richard Sachs, says her eyes... Sachs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs>